Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. And today I've got with me Sean Hogan. Hello, Sean. Hello. For the purposes of not pretending, we've just recorded another podcast, haven't we, Sean? We have, yeah. <laughs> so I'm done. Now. I'm done now. You've had, you've had, you've had the best of me. I've cut the best. This will be rubbish. I've had the best cuts off you. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason we're doing a second one is um, this is the uh, great five great British horror films. The rules of the game are simple, Sean. Five films, five British horror films that you want to celebrate. Yep. This isn't about us trying to define. The best British horror films, because that's been done in a million different books, websites, and people have argued, and people have had fights with me saying that this isn't an American, this is an American film, not a not a British film, and all kinds oh, yeah, of things like yeah, that. Yeah, sure. No. And I'm willing to go with anybody's anybody's view that our film is a British horror film. Okay. <laughs> I'm not drawing any lines. <laughs> demarcating. I think that, I think my 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 choices are all largely British. They may have like. The odd element in here and there that isn't British, but I think they're largely British films. We had uh, Giles Edwards on doing it, who I think you know. I do, yes. Not, not I, I, I heard that one. I was glad he stayed away from Death Line, otherwise he would have got a phone call from me. <laughs> <laughs> he was trembling. He had it on the list. I said, take it off. Take it off, Sean. I'll be furious. Um, so, with your list, and I won't, I won't say any more. We will put the list with the, with the show notes, but I won't, we won't say it up front. Now, what's interesting about your list, Sean, before we get going on the uh, timer, I should say, actually, part of the gig is we set the timer for five minutes and um, when the five minutes is up, we stop talking and move on to the next film. That's that's about the only rule I've got. Um, I'll just set my timer. I'll set my phone. It's great podcasting, isn't it, listening to me talk about what I'm literally doing <laughs> with my fingers. Um, and, yeah, so we'll go on to each film. So the first film you've chosen... Is from 1972, and it's a TV episode of was it a one one running series or long running series? No, it only had one series. What a crime! Um, and it's called The Exorcism, and the series was called Dead of Night. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little what that's about and why why you why you're excited about that? And want to tell the world? Okay, so part of my reason for picking it was that it's part of uh, the. TV sort of Christmas ghost story tradition even though it wasn't broadcast at Christmas it was broadcast on bonfire night but the film itself is a Christmas ghost story yes it is definitely that it tricked me yeah watching it after the fact yeah um and I think it's it's probably one of the it's not as well known as say like the MR James adaptations uh but I think it's brilliant and it's also brilliant and it's kind of ties in in this sense with my next choice in that it's a, a political horror film. It's is it a, ever? Yeah, it's a socialist ghost story. I believe the director described it as a socialist ghost Did story. Really? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it absolutely is. It's basically about this this gang of like 
hideous proto yuppies. The working class and their wealthy sons <laughs> is a wonderful life. <laughs> uh, some of whom are in dreadful, dreadful 70s apparel. Yeah, it's Gather- party. Yeah, uh, gathering for a Christmas party in this um, restored uh, historical cottage mm. that one of them has bought because it was overgrown and run to ruin and has done it all up. Mm. You know, all mod cons, and they sit down to have Christmas dinner, and it all starts going horribly, horribly wrong. Just a little bit. Yeah. Um, that burgundy is not as nice as it <laughs> blood. <laughs> um, and it turns out that they are obviously being haunted by the the spirits of the people who died in that cottage, and then it turns out that they were peasants who were basically driven to starvation by the landowners, and they are sort of wreaking their revenge mm. on these on these hideous modern day people. Yeah. Um, and it's brilliant. It's um, I mean, you don't actually see a ghost or anything like that in it. It's just the kind of an increasing air of dread, and things just start to go more and more wrong. But it sort of climaxes with this possession scene, where one of the women gets possessed by the mm. spirit talking through her, and it's an act. It's a tour de force of acting. I mean, it's like it's, a lot of rules that, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. I mean, there's someone who's kind of notorious for putting monologues in their stuff. It reminded you know? me. <laughs> it reminded me of Devil's Business. Yes. Uh, although I, th- I don't think I'd seen it when I wrote Devil's Business. Um, I'll tell you word for it, Sean. <laughs> but to me, it's it, it's a, it's an example of like what you can achieve doing that kind of thing. No, that, it's amazing. Some simplicity of means. I mean, yeah. it's literally just her doing this the horrible heart-wrenching story about this woman and her ki- children starving to death mm. um and it's absolutely brilliant it's sort of you know it's a showstopper and it's just and then you're kind of like yeah where do you go from there you know it's, it's just... a proper it's a proper like um like in like a solo in like discordant solo in just where you're kind of like yeah. is this not going to end yeah and then you kind of go right i'm with it i'm going with it now yeah Anna. yeah uh and you just sort of think Wow, that's hardcore. That's not. I mean, you know, and I, I, I love the Mr. James ghost stories for Christmas, but they're in a way they're sort of quite cozy. Very much so. Um, and this is just terrible. This is like you say, this is really full on sort of yeah. socialist politics. This is you know the underclass being starved to death to make way for you to have your nice meals and all your luxury mod cons and everything, and this is them wreaking their revenge. And you think that's a nice Christmas story. <laughs> <laughs> just, the, just the tad. Oh, Back yeah. in the day when the BBC would make stuff like yeah, that, you yeah. know, it's really, it's really there in that sense. And it, it's again um, thinking, of, thinking about how it resonates with today and stuff. It's mm-hmm. like the the way people talk about trying to move to the countryside, and it's a comp- even though they're modern day, they've got just as much disregard for whoever lives there and whoever mm-hmm. there. everything's there for them to consume. Yeah, there's yeah. a definite subtext to what's going on in there. But what I loved about it was as a group of grown ups. They were the most in control of themselves, despite all the irrational stuff going on, and that was what made it really, really exciting. Yes, I mean, it's, they, they're very English, mm. you know, aren't they? They're, they're sort of like, oh, this is this is interesting. Um, you know, my my burgundy tastes like blood. Um, there's there's nothing <laughs> no, else. There's no, no, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing outside the windows. We can't see any lights or civilization or anything. Uh, all the all the power's gone. All the, the phone doesn't work. How, but they're all trying to be very very rational about it. Yeah. Uh, and until things are just suddenly... we're sharing the delusion. That was yes. an amazing, yeah. amazing conclusion. Yeah. We're sharing it. It must be powerful. Yeah, um, yeah. They, you know, they're very, very English, but it doesn't save them. You know. Oh. Yeah, because it, it it has a. I mean, it runs what fifty minutes. Yeah. And it's what's interesting about the run is is you get this full story, but then the way it ends, 
could be the start of episode two in a way. There's a policeman arrives on scene in the morning. They're talking about you like going. There's the start of another. <laughs> that was kind of. Oh, we're out of time. Okay, we're, well, as Edgar Broughton would sing, "Out demons out." So, hot footing it to your next choice, which stays in 1972 though. I don't know how 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 close the productions of the films were, but certainly releases are. So, we've got Deathline, which I Indeed. believe you know something about. Apparently, well, I hope I did because I wrote a whole entire book about it. So you wrote the book Deathline, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which which was on another podcast. But let's let's briefly just give people. Uh, it's part of the Midnight Movie mono, Monograph series, which is a kind of genre jo- genre specific series of books where authors, filmmakers are invited to sort of talk about a, a, a film, and you chose Deathline. Deathline, yep. but obviously, yep. I think before you were writing the book, because you recommended Deathline to me years ago. Yep. It would have been an interesting British horror film. You would have chosen it, wouldn't it? Yes, as a great. British oh film. no, absolutely. I'm very. I've always been very fond of Deathline. It's a. It's a. It's a very odd film, and it doesn't really fit in with the British horror movie tradition, which is probably one of the reasons that I always liked it so much. And uh, the more I've seen it over the years, the more I sort of fell in love with it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that that that, that, you, that you, the Exorcism and Deathline of 1972. They couldn't be more. Poles yeah. of patterns of being British or not British. True, but well, I politically, uh, politically they're very they're very similar. Yeah, they're both attacking the establishment yeah, in some yeah, way, yeah, shape, yeah. or form. Yeah. The... Yeah, I mean like Deathline again is the underclass coming back to sort of mm. wreak revenge on, on the overclass in the in the form of um a cannibal who lives underneath the tube who was descended from miners who were trapped down there when they were constructing the tube tunnels. Uh, and they sort of some of them survived and obviously had kids and they were like basically raised as savages mm. and the only way they can survive is by sneaking out and like s- snatching people from the tube platforms and eating them but so this guy is is literally sort of a product of the underclass that were left to die down there yeah. you know generations ago and deathline is kind of like the excuse the pun end of the line i suppose for the last survivor of of people living in the tube isn't they they they're, they're the fight, the fight has come to the. Oh, this is the yeah. This is the last one. This is the last guy left. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so it's 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 interesting in that sense because although he's monstrous, he's a tragic figure. Mm. He's presented very sympathetically, and we you see him at the beginning of the film, and his mate is dying, and he's sort of sobbing over his mate, and all the, although he has no language, he's you know he's obviously distraught. Uh, and then you con- you contrast him with the kind of the two protagonist figures of the film, you know, one of whom is this callous, asshole student uh, who should be heroic but isn't. Mm. And then you've got Donald Pleasance as the police inspector, who's just kind of comic relief. I mean, he's brilliant, but he does nothing. He achieves yeah. nothing. He's just the kind of uselessness of the establishment personified. Um, so you've got this film where the monster's the most sympathetic character in it. And it plays that way, doesn't it? It's yeah. really, really nicely done. It's almost like all the all the anger and anxiety towards the world is felt through people who've got all the luxuries afforded to them. Yeah. And, yeah. All, and all the all the kind of yeah. one with yourself. Is I mean, I don't it. think it stacks the bases. I think that, I think he he is genuinely monstrous and you you're shown that he kills people and he eats people hmm. and he's, you know, he's brutish and savage and all this kind of thing. But he's also sympathetic. He has sort of recognisable emotions. He didn't choose this existence that was imposed upon him, mm. you know. And then he's when he's contrasted against the sort of more human characters, they kind of come off pretty badly. Yeah, 
Yeah, he brings out, he almost brings out the worst in them in a sense. Yeah, in uh, in the way that it's. But he's it, it's it. I mean, you would you would you would probably say it's it's Pleasance's best performance you've seen. I think so. I think I I think Pleasance is absolutely brilliant in the film. I. You know, there's there's a lot of stuff I talk about in the book in terms of like how it happened this way and how it came to be that he sort of runs away with the film, uh, and I don't know how much of it was planned and how much of it just happened, but he kind of just runs with that character. They obviously sort of wrote him a comedic character and he just runs with it and he sort of overpowers the film in a way. And one of those particular stories is the uh, notorious after hours scene. Where, oh yeah. On the one hand. It's a brilliantly improvised scene, an actor at the height of his game. Yep. It's three drunk men yep. improvising. Yep. Or it's exactly as the scriptwriter intended and the director wanted. Well, uh, there are differing opinions about this. My my research suggests that there was a certain amount of improv in that scene. Mm. It comes off as being quite improvised. Gary Sherman now says no, everything was written. So, you know, I don't know. I can only say what I've read and what I think but you know who can say the I think the most interesting point to make about the scene regardless of how it came about is that it's really weird in terms of the construction it it comes at the vital point in the film (laughs) and it's two people getting pissed in the pub and you would never write that scene as a screenwriter because it would be like this is not taking the story anywhere and yet it's brilliant and that's kind of death line all over totally good good way to to end it on there right then for uh, for your third choice we're going to race forward to 1977 in a film i've not seen the haunting, very few people have seen it the haunting of julia so why why have very few of us seen it because it was almost a lost film i thought it was a lost film for a while um or practically so i only knew about this film i was actually told about it by pascal logier who directed martyrs okay and we had a beer with him when that screened at Fright Fest, which would have been nearly 10 years ago now. Yeah. And I remember him talking about it, and he was kind of railing against the fact that, that you could only get this very beautiful film in like terrible pan and scan VHS editions, and how it was a crime. Mm. And I was like, that's really interesting. I don't really know anything about that film. I'm going to try and search it out. And so um, me and a friend of mine sort of eventually tracked down a bootleg version that had been copied from French television. So, and it wasn't particularly good quality, but it was in widescreen ratio, or at least something approximating widescreen okay, ratio. Okay. So you could at least get a sense of how the film was meant to look, even though I remember like the sound was really poor mm. on it, and it was a bit muffled noise kind of thing. And so we watched the film and sort of really began to appreciate like that there was actually something going on here. This was actually a really interesting film. And then, but and then this uh, friend of mine sort of tried to find out whether the elements of the film were still available, and sp- you know, ends up speaking to the film's director, Richard Longcrane. Mm. And they he knew where the negative was, but thought that the soundtrack had been lost. So there was this whole kind of thing wow. like, oh, this film's never actually going to be seen properly. And then a few years ago, and like. I'm not encouraging people to go online and steal movies by any chart, by by any stretch of the imagination. But however, there are some films that you just can't see otherwise. This being one of them. Not being able to buy it is usually a reason. Yes, to... um, a lovely widescreen master of it turned up online a few years ago, and it turned out that uh, Sony had a master of it, and it popped up on a movie channel, and all of a sudden, so this got onto the internet. And so now this was finally a way to see the wow. film that you could that's actually meant to be the way it's meant to be seen. Yeah. 
uh, because it is a beautiful looking film. It's shot by. What's good, what's good about? I mean, it's about a, 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 a so rich it's a, housewife. Yeah, I mean, it? it's a, it's a ghost story. It's written by Peter Straub, who wrote Ghost Story, which yeah, yeah, is yeah, his yeah. first novel based on based based on his first novel. And it's basically uh, it's it's a Mia Farrow cracks up movie. Mm. Uh, she starts off film. She's yeah, like well to do family. Her husband and her daughter. And then her daughter chokes to death, oh. and oh, Mia Farrow actually kills her trying to perform an emergency oh. tracheotomy. Right, okay. So she then has a breakdown after this. When she's in recovery, she decides to leave her husband and like buy herself a house and just get away from it all. Oh. She moves into this house, obviously still fragile, and her husband is trying to get her back because it turns out that she has a trust fund that her husband and his sister are sort of dependent on. So they're constantly trying to get her back and persuade her that she can't live on her own. Meanwhile, she starts seeing this little girl in the house right, okay. who she initially thinks is the, the ghost of her daughter. It turns out it's not. It turns out it's the, the ghost of her daughter or the ghost, the ghost of this little girl who used to live there. Right, okay. And so she then tries, starts trying to find out what this girl's story is to try and help her. And then it turns out the little girl's spirit is actually malignant. Oh. And what, and makes, it, it, what makes it a good, a good horror film? I mean, uh, your director there, uh, Richard Longcrane. Richard Longcrane, yeah. I only knew, like, Richard III that he'd done in the yeah, 90s. Yeah, and the, I think the only other sort of remotely genre thing he did was Brimstone and Treacle. Yeah, not one of them. Um, that's the end of it, I think. Oh, right, okay. Um... Yeah, and I, I think the thing with this film is it's not like necessarily, for the most part, I wouldn't even sort of say the horror stuff is particularly what I'd recommend about it. I mean, it has a kind of series of characters sort of die strangely throughout the film, but mm. a lot of those are sort of quite perfunctory. It's like the film's not that interested in those elements. Yeah, It's kind of more about Mia Farrow cracking up. It's okay. very much about Mia Farrow being neurotic, and it's like beautifully done. She's great in it, and it has this sort of whole air of melancholy and gloom and guilt and everything, which is kind of mm. fantastic. Has this beautiful score by Colin Towns, and as I say, the widescreen lensing in it looks beautiful, and it kind of builds to this ending where, for me, it's kind of like one of the most beautiful sh last shots of any horror film ever, mm. and that's wow. kind of yeah. And it's sort of poetic and it's horrible and it's beautiful and mm. it's just the kind of it ends it just the right way and it's sort of like yeah it couldn't really end any anywhere else but there and you can read the, the final shot in two different ways as well. Oh, cool, cool. Um, and it's just I mean the the final shot is literally haunting, you know. Mm. Um, and so it's it's one of those films that's sort of like I don't know how well it works as a horror movie but as a kind of mm. atmospheric mm. wallow in sort of gloom and melancholy it's sort of eerie and quite beautiful I'll take your word for that sounds like a cracker um, for your fourth choice we're uh, again this is another one I've not seen um, you've gone for The Shout from 1978 a year later yeah wasn't one of the I mean I'd heard I'd I'd, I'd heard of The Haunted Julie, but knew it, never seen it, but I'd okay. never heard of The Shadow. Oh, okay. Well, this is actually available. This is You don't have to steal this, kids. You can go and buy this on Blu-ray from Network Distribution. Um, and, uh, yeah, I would thoroughly recommend everyone seeing it. And what's this it. one about? So this one is essentially... Uh, well, the bulk of the story is basically about this couple that live in this quaint little English village. Uh, and this guy turns up one day. This weirdo turns up and kind of moves in with them. And claims that he lived in the outback with 
the Aborigines, and he's acquired some of their magic, and he can basically use their magic in sort of. Is that Alan Bates? Or John that's Hurt? Alan Bates. Yeah, that's John. Alan John Hurt's the husband. Okay. He's the kind of henpecked husband. And, and Alan Bates, Bates moves in. And Bates, yeah, and basically kind of mesmerises John Hurt's wife, starts yeah. sleeping with his wife, and um, claims that he can kill people with a shout, that he knows this shout wow. that can actually kill people with the power of this shout. And, it's, but, and but it also has a framing story which takes place in an insane asylum where oh, it's really? Alan Bates telling this story. Oh, wow. And the people from the story are—you see them in the framing story in the in the asylum, but you're not entirely sure whether they're the same people or not. So it's a very kind of weird elliptical framing story that you're not entirely sure if he's telling the truth mm. or what any of this actually means. Because here they're watching a cricket match as he tells the story, and John Hurt's playing in a cricket match. And you're like, well, is, is he an inmate or is he just? From the village or what? And is he is he the so character that he's talking about? So or? this is kind of what is this sort of like a Shutter Island? So not, well, not, it, it doesn't, but it never it never time. answers these questions. Oh wow! Really? So it's just weird. It's kind of left open to your interpretation as to what you're meant to make of all. And this. I have to ask, what's Alan Bates' performance like? He's great. He's, he's great. He's you know he's magnetic and he just sort of yeah. Um, I mean, poor John Hurt. He just sort of comes in and starts shagging his wife, and then he you know sends him to go and get food afterwards and all this kind of thing. Um, he just kind of owns the movie. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I'd say there there is there is a moment in the film where he demo finally demonstrates the shout, yeah. and it's brilliant. It's kind of a real set piece where he sort of takes him out into these sand dunes, leads him out a long way out, and says, mm. "You have to like plug your ears with wax and everything, and I will shout." And he kind of lets forth this shout, mm. and it's brilliant it's sort of like the sound design is brilliant you actually kind of believe that the shout could kill something and you actually see this shot of all these sheep dropping dead that's actually beautifully done i don't even know how they did it it looks like and they killed the, is, all the sheep. It, does the build feel like this is the thing yeah 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 this is oh, what yeah. we need we need yeah. we need to see the shout if it, yeah 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 and it's actually it can never just be a threat yeah no 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 it's brilliantly done um and so yeah, and it's 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 one of those films again. It's sort of like I mean, it, it kind of gets classified as a horror film. I don't know if it would satisfy anyone looking for a sort of balls out horror film. I would put it very much in the kind of tradition what people talk about these days as the weird. Mm. Um, it's just this kind of very odd, unsettling psychodrama where there, there are obviously supernatural elements, but you're also not entirely sure what's going on or what any of it actually means. Right. Um, but it's compelling. It's just sort of so atmospheric and odd. And this would have got like a full cinema release at the yeah, time. It, got, it was screened at Cannes. It screens a part of wow. Critics Week at Cannes. It was that. It was uh, first film produced by Jeremy Thomas, hmm. who obviously sort of very famous English producer now. Went on and worked with you know Cronenberg and Bertolucci, and you know did wow. did High Rise with Ben Wheatley recently. Um, it was the first film he produced. Um, and you know it obviously has a sort of high. You know, and how did it, how did it come into your um, it, it, as as films go? How did this come across your? It was it, uh, your it, screen. It was just one of those films that I knew about, and I'd never got around to seeing it. And I'd kind of heard it was interesting. And you know, the older you get, you've seen a lot of the stuff that you're meant to see mm. on the lists of kind of stuff that everyone should have seen. So you start looking a bit further afield, and then yeah. it it actually came out on Blu-ray, and like Network released it on Blu-ray, and I kind of thought you know what, I've never got around to seeing that, and I bought the Blu-ray and watched it, and I was like, wow, holy fuck. Can you, can you see its influence anywhere? Is it, has, it, 
as it had. I mean, it's. I don't. It's one of those films that I director, don't. Yeah. Director, isn't yeah. It? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to try Jerzy Skolimowski. Yeah. yeah um, who did Deep End, which is a great film as well. Not right. a horror film, but it's kind of weird, dark elements to it. Right. Um, I don't know if it has had an influence because it's the kind of thing that doesn't really fit. Um, but there's a theme emerging in your uh, your choices, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. <laughs> Sean, do you fit? No. <laughs> <laughs> this is the tradition I work in of films that don't quite fit. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so maybe someone will be talking about me on a podcast in thirty years. <laughs> Brilliant. Right then, another another non non uh, non easily <laughs> pigeonholed film. Then we're gonna we're having having spent four films in the seventies. I finally come up to date. You've leapt us <laughs> into the current decade. Forget everything else. Everything yeah. in the eighties and nineties was shite. Eighties and nineties, we're, we're 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 walking over, and 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 you've gone for uh, Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin. Yes, with the uh, wonderful performance from. Um, I think so. Yeah, I'm not sure everyone did, but I did. So. Um, we both read the book. Yes, interestingly, and I thought I thought the film was a great adaptation for not being exactly like the books. The book's very much like a, a oh, it felt like you're seeing on an industrial scale, and you're kind of you're not following one or anything. You're just seeing mm-hmm. this happen. Aliens are harvested. Yeah. So I read the book several years before the film came out, uh, before it was even mooted as a film. I think. Yeah, no, me too. I just picked it up. Read it and thought, oh, that sounds interesting. Read it, fucking hated it. Did you? Yes, I thought it was terrible. I thought it was a thudding vegetarian tract. I thought it was obvious and pedantic and boring, and I, I couldn't, that, I, couldn't well, stand it. Dear listener, I thought the opposite. Yeah, well, <laughs> he's wrong and I'm right. <laughs> so what, what? What attracted you to a film? Well, this is a, from a book perfect, you perfect love... case study in how a film doesn't necessarily need to be like the book. True. Um, well, I mean, obviously, when I heard they were making it, I was like, "That's interesting." Um, and it went through some trials and tribulations. Didn't it, it did, you know. I think they tried to do a version that was probably much closer to the book, um, and for whatever reason, didn't. Gladly, I'm, I'm gladly they didn't. Um, I guess you know, I was interested because it was Jonathan Glazer, and I was all like, mm. "Okay." And then people started sort of saying, "This is actually pretty interesting," and it's not entirely like the book. And I was like, "Well, that sounds like music to my ears." Um, and then I saw it, and. It's brilliant. It strips away all the stuff from the book that you don't need. True. Um, you don't need... To, I mean, it implies things, but it leads you to sort of figure it out. Mm. Um, and all the stuff from the book that I thought was really stupid and boring, it's just all gone, you know? And so what's left is kind of very enigmatic and very elliptical, but it's essentially roughly the same story. But it felt it felt less of a horror story as a book, but more of a horror story as a film. Yeah, although yes, no, absolutely. But I think the film is a very kind of uh, specific kind of horror story. It's a very existential horror story. Self-realization, isn't it? It's yeah, it's the, the horror of being human, and and mm. and very specifically the horror of being a human woman. Mm. Uh, and I say this because I remember when it came out, and there being some very um, misguided people online. I remember seeing this at the time shouting about it being misogynist. And I was like, that film is about as far from being misogynist as you can get. Yeah. Um, It is about this being that impersonates a woman and then realises how terrible it can be to Mm. be a human woman. Yeah. Uh, And, and, you know, eventually dies because of it. Um, 
so yeah, so it's very much kind of an existential horror movie for me. I mean, it's sort of nominally science fiction, but mm. you know, definitely has a foot in horror. For those that won't, that might have not seen this yet, uh, Jonathan Glaze is probably best known, I suppose, for Sexy Beast. Yeah, I mean, probably best known for that. Although, I mean, I I like his other film, Birth, as a lot as yeah. well. But but Sexy Beast, yeah, but you, but I, I use Sexy Beast as being his best known for, but also as a kind of completely opposite type of film yes there's, there's no you would if you if you sat me down and said this is the guy who made yeah, yeah you, wouldn't, <laughs> yeah. you wouldn't necessarily leap to that conclusion and that's that's to the that's to the you know the acclaim of the director isn't it that he's he's chosen a vision for yeah i think I, I mean i think this, that's the really interesting thing about the film in many ways that it strips so much stuff away mm. it's not just not only does it strip a lot of the story of the novel away but it also strips a lot of the kind of artifice of filmmaking away so a lot of the actors in it are either non-actors or non-professional actors. Like, yeah. There's a lot of stuff with that they just filmed roaming around Glasgow. I mean, you know, if you're going to make a film about an alien in Glasgow, you can't really do much better than cast a Hollywood film star and like stick her on a Glasgow ca- council estate. Driving it's sort of like, yeah, it's like immediately <laughs> she's an alien. Whatever else you're going to do, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, watching yeah, yeah. Scarlett Johansson. Yeah wander around Glasgow mm. is just sort of like deeply weird in and mm. of itself mm. and and like you say she's great in the film I think a lot of people were like because it's not an emotive performance a lot of people were like oh she's really wooden she can't act and it's like no 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 that's not what she's doing Jeez. and there's there's a scene in it which is the kind of the moment I think where she starts to become human where she basically it's just her looking in a mirror but she's brilliant in it because it's the, her eyes it's the kind of this weird terror she has. Mm. She suddenly realises what she's becoming and what being human is and it's just all played out in her eyes and it's absolutely fantastic. And it's kind of, that's what great screen acting can be. It's not necessarily about emoting. It's about communicating something with your eyes. But what do you, what do you as a direct, from a director's point of view, what are you, what would you be saying there to get, to get... Well, you can, exp- I mean, you kind of explain what the subtext of the scene is, but you cannot, there's no way, you can't make someone give you a good performance mm. in that scene, in, in those circumstances. Mm. You can't just sort of say, stand in front mm. of a mirror and be brilliant. I mean, but <laughs> she does, so, sure, you know. Surely that's all you have to do. <laughs> but look, that brings us to the end of uh, your five great British horror films. Thank you, Sean. Well, that, was, that, was, that was over all too soon. It was, wasn't it? But, but let's remind people, you've got a book out. I do have a book out on Deathline. On Deathline, Cold Deathline. It's part of the, what's it called, the series? Midnight Monograph. Midnight Movie Monograph? Yes. Yeah, I don't even know the name. And given where we are when this, this podcast will hit, will, will hit the airwaves, you're also doing a you're also doing a film which is connected to what, Yuletide Terror? Terror, yeah. yeah which, which is, is a, a book. A, bu- a bunch of essays by horror writers. and On and Christmas horror, on. TV and film. I have made a Christmas ghost story short film to tie in with the book. Mm-hmm. Which uh, is being shown at various launch events for the book, including one at the Horse Hospital on the 14th of December, I believe, as part of uh, the London Miskatonic organisation. But as far as I know, it will also be released online on Christmas Eve for anyone who wants to who wants a Christmas ghost story fix. So you know, you should just be able to watch it. Follow you on Twitter to get get the link. I'm not on Twitter, so tough. <laughs> Thanks for giving us your five great British horror show. Cheers. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you.
It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com.